You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Hey, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke tonight, uh, chapter 18. We'll be starting chapter 18 tonight, which is really exciting to dive in there. We'll be in the first eight verses. Before we head there, uh, I just want to say a couple of things. First, welcome. Welcome to the well. If you're new with us, you're visiting with us, if you haven't been here in a while, glad you're here. My name's Joe, one of the leaders here, and I'm glad that you're here. I get the privilege to preach the word uh, in our midst this evening. Well, we should pray before we get into Luke's gospel, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I just ask tonight as we gather together um, and as we prepare to sit under the preaching of your word, God, I pray that your spirit would be released to move in our midst. Lord, I know that there are many of us that come into this place, space, and time distracted and weary. Um, Weary from our battle against sin throughout the week. Weary from fighting the distractions throughout the week that take our focus and our gaze off of you. So God, as we open your word, I just, Lord, I just beg you and ask you to come and be in our midst. And I pray, God, that you would turn our hearts, our imaginations, our minds to you. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to continue growing as people of faith. Help us not to lose heart in the midst of um, trying times. But I pray that you would encourage and rebuke and strengthen. I pray, God, that you would call some to believe in the message of the gospel, the message of the, cry, the, the cross, and, and the message of Christ, maybe for the first time through hearing this message. So, God, I pray those things. I believe you to do it. I do pray, God, that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and that they would be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. A question for us tonight that I really want us to wrestle with is this. Like, ask yourself this question. Are, are you a person of faith who doesn't lose heart in prayer? Are you a person who doesn't lose heart in prayer? Have you ever found yourself uh, maybe getting discouraged in prayer? Find yourself wondering where God was when that person hurt you? Find yourself getting cold and cynical towards God and other people? Believing that God maybe doesn't act justly? Believing that God doesn't love you as much as everyone says he does? Are you believing that he doesn't listen to you, listen to your cries for help? Do you find yourself believing or thinking that God doesn't answer your prayers fast enough? We all struggle with losing heart in prayer sometimes. That's the reality. Every one of us can lose heart in prayer. In our text today, I think what Jesus knows is that what he's been laying down over the last few chapters maybe could be beginning to feel nearly unbearable for those who are listening to him. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks as we've studied and preached our way through the gospel of Luke, I would encourage you to go back and listen and go back and study and go back and look at the passages that we've studied in the last couple of chapters because what Jesus has been laying down is some really hard words. 
And I think what Jesus knows is that what he's been saying would feel nearly unbearable, undoable, impossible for those who are listening to him. And so I think what he wants to do in this passage is is exhort us and encourage us not to lose heart, but instead to continue growing as people of faith. So look at Luke 18. Beginning in verse 1, Luke tells us, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. So she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So what Luke is doing here is he's, he's telling us in verse 1 especially that Jesus is using this story of this persistent widow and this unrighteous or unjust judge. I like to call him a jerk of a judge. That's what I like to call him. Jesus using this story of this persistent widow and this jerk of a judge to encourage us always to pray and not lose heart. We're not to lose heart in coming to God. We're not to lose heart in coming to him with our needs and our requests. As as Jesus encourages this, as he tells this story, I think that what he does is he like uncovers some of the reasons that we actually struggle with losing heart in prayer as people of faith. You ask yourself, like, why do you lose heart? Like, what causes you to get lazy and complacent when it comes to coming to God in prayer? I think that what Jesus does is gives us five reasons. And number one, I think what I see is that we lose heart in prayer when we encounter people who neither fear God nor respect other people. You think about this for a minute. When you encounter other people, especially other people who call themselves Christians, who actually don't even live a life where they actually fear God and respect other people, where they their only respect is for themselves. They don't respect others. They actually put up big shrouds and pretend like they respect others, pretend like they love others. When you encounter Christians who are that way, isn't it easy to get discouraged? I mean, I think it's easier to get discouraged when you encounter someone who carries the name of Christian but doesn't live their lives in a way that exhibits true fear of the Lord and true love and respect and compassion for others. When you encounter those kinds of people, it's easy to get discouraged in your prayer life. And not just your prayer life, but also in your faith period. Agreed? I think it's especially discouraging maybe to if, if, if maybe the person that you are encountering who doesn't 
fear God or respect or love or showing compassion towards others, especially if that person is in a quote-unquote position of authority. When you encounter parents who, have, who do not raise their kids to fear God, right? If you have a parent who has not led you in a way so that you will fear God and respect other people, it's real easy to get discouraged at that point, isn't it? Jesus tells us, look at this unjust judge. Jesus tells us that in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Have you ever wrestled with the discouragement of encountering a person of authority and power who doesn't revere God? Who maybe honors him with their lips, but does not honor them, him with their lives? Someone in a position of authority who doesn't revere God, doesn't treat other people with respect and love and compassion. Ever encountered that person? Maybe a parent or, or an employer, maybe, or a spouse. Isn't it discouraging to encounter these people when you feel, listen, when you feel like you're doing everything you possibly can to live your life in a way in which you would fear God, love others, serve others, show compassion to other people, and then you encounter a person who should be living this way and they don't. What does that discouragement feel like to you? And this judge in our passage, think about this judge. And he has the authority and the power and the responsibility to act justly on behalf of other people who do not have the power, do not have the resource, do not have the authority or the ability to receive the help they need. His job is to help. It's his job. He gets paid to do this, Right? Judge's responsibility is to be an advocate, is to be an advocate for the oppressed who are doing everything that they can do just to get by. But the problem with this judge is that he doesn't fear God, right? He's got the gavel, he's got the robe, he's got the position and the title, but he doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect other people. He's not doing his job. He's not living up to his job description. Doesn't measure up. Like, ask yourself, what happens in your heart when you encounter this kind of person? When you encounter someone that you believe does not fear God or does not respect people, when your spouse doesn't live up to the godly standard of what a spouse should be, what do you do? What happens in your heart? How do you treat them? How do you speak to them? What do you think about them? How do you relate to God in those moments? Like when your boss behaves in an ungodly way, when other Christians don't behave the way that God's word says they should behave, what do you do? Because you and I can't control what other people do. We can only be responsible for how we behave, how we respond, how we lawn, how we, how we think, and how we act. That's all we can be accountable for, right? So how do you, how do you respond when you encounter a person like this, when your parents or your relatives don't measure up to the standard that you have for them. And listen, listen. Like the standard that you have for other people may be good and godly. That's some of the standards that the Pharisees held up for people around them were based on God's word. 
Hello. It's good stuff, right? But the problem, especially if you go back and think about the Pharisees, they couldn't apply this to their own lives. But they sure spent a heck of a lot of time applying this to everybody else like a big fat heavy weight, right? Jesus is teaching us here that when we encounter people who neither fear God nor respect or love or show compassion for other people, we must not become discouraged and lose heart. We must not lose heart, but instead we must continue to come to God in prayer. The basic message of this passage is do not lose heart in your coming to God as a person of faith in prayer. The second thing I notice in this passage is I think we lose heart in prayer when we suffer injustice at the hands of our enemies. I've seen more people shipwreck their faith simply because of how somebody else sinned against them. I think it's a, it's a subtle tactic. It's a subtle tactic of, of Satan and our enemy. That he's the enemy of our souls. Satan is the, the enemy of all that is good that's been placed within in us. You think about it, if we were created in the image of God and sin marred that and broke that, and if our adversary, if one of our adversaries is sin, the other adversary we have is Satan, and the one thing that Satan wants to do is ruin your ability to come to God and believe in him and trust in him. And sometimes what happens and what, what stunts that growth and what stops us from coming to God is injustice that we suffer at the hands of other people. It's really easy to wonder, God, where were you? Where were you when that person hurt me that way? Where were you when they, they did me wrong? Where were you when they, when they spoke wrongly of me? Where, where were you when they slandered me? Where were you when they gossiped about me? Where were you when, when that man sexually hurt me? Where, where were you in the midst of that when someone used me and abused me and left me on the side of the road for dead? Where were you in the middle of that? Like, it's easy for us to get there. And let me, let me just say as a side note, like if you think that God's shoulders are too small for you to come to him and ask that question, man, your picture of God is small. And the God that I serve is the one that created the universe. He holds the world in the palm of his hand. To, act, to come to him and say, where were you when I was hurt this way? Is not too big of a question to ask. And in fact... I think it's the question that Satan doesn't want you to come to God and ask because maybe in the moment of asking God that question, God could reveal himself to you in a way that could totally heal your heart, set you free. It's really easy to wonder where God's at when we suffer injustice at the hands of our enemies, when we're falsely accused. When someone gossips or slanders, when someone suffers horrific physical or emotional Abuse, or even the crippling pain of sexual abuse, which, man, the stats are high on that in the world today. In all these instances and more, it becomes really easy to lose heart in prayer because we begin to believe that maybe God has abandoned us in our pain and our suffering. For anyone who can relate to this type of pain, then the picture of this persistent widow in this passage is meant to bring you healing tonight. 
Look again at this persistent widow. Jesus tells us that there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Give me justice against my adversary. I was just reminiscing this afternoon. Hopefully this makes a connection, but reminiscing this afternoon that Christy and I have now been married for going on 14 years. I'm looking at her to make sure I've got that right. I got that right. (laughs) We've been married nearly now 14 years. The first couple of years that we were married was an absolute train wreck, right? That's why we moved towards divorce, got divorced, and then God restored our marriage once we both began to follow Jesus. It wasn't just like one day all rainbows and unicorns either, okay? It took a lot of hard work. 14, nearly 14 years later, um, we can look back and see all the hard work that that's taken. But we also see there's about roughly almost 20 years of, of having kids. And I remember this afternoon, all that to be said as a preamble to this one little thing. You guys know where, where I'm going to go here in a minute. I walk up to my sink in my kitchen. Uh-oh. Yep. I find, I find a stack of dirty plates. <laughs> and one of my pet peeves is you don't put dirty plates in the sink. You rinse them off. You stack them next to the sink. Because if, if you don't do that, what happens is you get an entire sink full of filthy, nasty, stinky dishes the next day, right? And so it's just a pet peeve. And I, and I remember just going, Lewis, Austin. Did you guys do this? And, and they came in, you know, they, Lewis, actually, I think, actually came in and washed them, off, washed them off. And as I was walking away, I was like, Christy, 20 years, 20 flipping years of repeating myself over and over and over and over again, right? Right? Anybody else, you know, are you with me? You know where I'm at Who in that moment, right? Right? <laughs> Persistence, the persistence of this widow in this passage just kind of rocks my world, right? Like she, she wasn't trying to get anything wrong. She wasn't trying to persist in sin. She wasn't trying to persist in screwing up God's word. She wasn't trying to persist in going her own direction and stiff-arming all that was good. She was trying to persist in getting what was right, kind of like trying to get dishes out of the sink, 19 years. Just ask yourself a question just for a minute, a side bunny trail. How many years has God been speaking to you about his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his love, his forgiveness, his faithfulness? How many, how many years has God been speaking to you about that? Some of you have been here, it's been like a year. Some of you, it's been like 30 years. Now, let me just ask you this question. Why is God still repeating himself to you? Because, because we're sheep, right? Because we're sheep, right? Thank God that he doesn't get so frustrated with us that he just boosh, wipes us off the face of the planet, right? Like there's some day when that's coming. Someday when that's coming. If you have not trusted in Christ, we've studied that the last couple of weeks. Here you get this picture of this widow who's being treated unjustly. She continues coming to this judge, this jerk of a judge saying, give me justice against my adversary. And this widow would have been very poor, if not possibly homeless. Put yourself in her shoes. She wouldn't have had a husband to provide for her family needs. And in that culture, it would have been very difficult for a widow to get a job. First thing on the resume. Do you have a husband? No, he died. 
find somebody else. It's just part of the culture of that day. It would have been very hard. Today's culture, different. So for you to put yourself in her situation, think of it that way. Very difficult for her to get a job because she didn't have a husband to be her advocate. Husbands were meant to be advocates in those days. Still should be today if you ask me. Another bunny trail, the reason why families are such a train wreck today is because men refuse to lead. Men refuse to open the scriptures with their children. Men refuse to pray over their wives. Part of the reason. Here in this case, she had no man. She would have been viewed by the public as a second-rate citizen who relied on the welfare system for handouts. And somewhere along the way, someone had taken advantage of this poor woman. Taken advantage of her, it abused her in terrifying ways. And now, now she's coming to the one person on earth that should be her advocate should be her dispenser of justice. But to her horror, to her terror, what she finds out is that the judge treats her with contempt. So it's like she suffers a double injustice. A double injustice, not only in the hands of her enemy who has abused her in horrible ways, but also an injustice in the way that her advocate has failed her completely. What happens in your heart when you suffer injustice at the hands of an enemy? When someone abuses his or her authority over you? When someone mistreats you, when someone falsely accuses you, listen, (laughs) confession, I can't tell you how many times I've been falsely accused of saying something I did not say and then never received an apology for it. Do I let it get me down? To be honest with you, yeah, in my weakest of moments, it consumes me. It consumes me. Why? Because again, I think if Satan can get our eyes off our Savior and our King and get ourselves on somebody else who has hurt us, who wins? Who wins? Satan wins. Right? And what Jesus wants to do is set you free from that. Set you free from always trying to pursue what you think you deserved. Though in the picture of this woman, this widow, we see her persistence. When someone hurts you deeply and then tells you that it's your fault that you got hurt, how do you, how do you process that? Are you tempted to lose heart in these moments because you cannot imagine a God that would allow this to happen to you? Do you begin to believe that there's no way that God could have been present when that person hurt you so deeply? Jesus is encouraging us here to be just like this persistent widow, to never lose heart in coming to God with our prayers, encouraging us to be persistent 
Jesus teaching us that even though we suffer injustice at the hands of our enemies, we can trust that God has never left us. He's never forsaken us. We were never alone. He was always there. If you've trusted in Christ this evening, nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can separate you from his love. Let me say it again. Nothing can separate you from his love. He hasn't left you. He never left you. He was always there, though you and I cannot comprehend that a good God could be present when we suffer that injustice. The tension between the two is what drives us to the foot of the cross and not losing heart in prayer. God has never left our side, even during the most horrific injustices, during the most horrific abuse that may have been committed against us. Don't lose heart, not only in prayer, but don't lose heart as you pursue God as a person of faith. The third reason that I think we lose heart in prayer is when we encounter people with selfish motivations. Let me think about this for a minute. Would you guys let your brain shift and turn? When you encounter someone else with really selfish motivations, and they have no clue. But you know, right? You know. You're like, I can see that written all over you from a mile away. You are selfish. Like, you get around somebody that's all they do is just talk about themselves and their problems, their issues, and blah, 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 right? You're like, I'm out of here. Like, <laughs> got time for that, right? When we encounter people who behave super selfishly, it can be really easy at that point to just get cold and cynical towards God and other people. Know somebody that's taken from you more than they've given to you? At that point, at some point, it's really easy to get cold and cynical, not only towards people, but towards God. Because I want you to try this one on for size for a minute. I preach it all the time. Like, if you got issues in relationship to somebody else, your real issue is in your relationship with God. Really. Honestly. Like, that's the baseline teaching of Scripture, right? You follow Jesus for five years. This is the basics that you learn in Christianity, okay? So if there's some of you here, you've only been following Jesus for like two years, hey, it's okay. You're still learning the basics. This is one of those things you should put in your pocket and save it for later so you can pull it out and remind yourself, hey, when my relationships are a wreck with everybody else, because my relationship with Jesus is a wreck, period, okay? Because I know a dude named the Apostle Paul who was chained to a freaking guard, right? His relationships with other people, fine. There are people who didn't like him very much, right? He was in the most horrible of circumstances when it comes to relationships. But his relationship with the Lord, good. Good. Starts between me and God and you and God. But when you encounter other people with selfish motivations, easy to get cold and cynical. When you get cold and cynical, what you're doing is you're giving in to sin. Cold-heartedness and cynicism, they're never going to change. They're always going to be like this. They're never going to quit being selfish. They're never going to give as much as I do, right? They're only going to give because they want to be seen in their giving, right? You encounter people like this, right? When someone maybe uses you as a run in a ladder for his or her personal success, it's easy to get cynical and cold. When someone treats you like a commodity in his or her relational structure, it's easy to get jaded. This is that person that only calls you when they want help. It's the only time they call. Or when they're pissed off at you because you didn't give them what they expected to get, right? It's really easy at that point to get cold and jaded. It's cynical. And really, 
Getting cynical and cold and jaded towards others is really an issue between us and God. We're really getting cold and cynical and jaded with him because we're asking the question, God, how could you let this happen? Right? You let me down. That's really what we're doing. If we're going to be honest, if we're really going to walk a road of repentance, we have to be honest that what we really struggle to believe is that what God allows to happen in our lives, he's sovereign over. What about when someone sees you as their ticket to quench their craving for power, pleasure, and status? Isn't it easy to clam up, lock yourself away from God and his people? Jesus knows this temptation. He he knows the risk we face in this life of becoming cold, cynical, jaded, and guarded towards God and other people. So he paints this picture for us of this selfish judge in contrast to the widow who doesn't lose heart in seeking what is right. Look again at the selfish judge and the widow who doesn't lose heart. Jesus tells us that for a while, he, the selfish and unjust judge, refused. Refused to give her what she was asking for. But afterwards he said to himself, catch this. He said to himself, you know what? Though I neither fear God nor respect man. So I mean, this guy's so stinking jerky. He knows this about himself. Like, what I wouldn't give for for some people to be that uh, self-aware, right? Like, you know what? I I just have not been living in a way that's where I would fear God. I've not been living in a way where I would respect other people or love other people. That'd be great. Like, i got to give this guy some kudos for at least understanding that about himself, right? He knows this about himself, but you know what makes it worse? His rebellion is so bad that he realizes this about himself, but he continues walking the same direction. Right? Doesn't he? Because look, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. In other words, this judge is so selfish. He has such selfish motivations that the only reason that this judge quits refusing to act rightly on behalf of the widow is that he's tired of being nagged. He's tired of being nagged. That's the only reason he acts rightly. He doesn't want to endure this continual beatdown that he's receiving from this widow who refuses to give up on pursuing justice for herself. Even though this judge refuses to help, this widow refuses to give up. Even though the judge refuses to act rightly, this widow refuses to stop asking rightly. The widow refused to get cold and cynical and jaded and sheltered, even though the judge acted with selfish motivations. What happens in your heart when you encounter someone with selfish motivations? Can you sense the jadedness deep down inside of you? The cold-heartedness deep down inside of you? The cynicism deep down inside of you. Like when someone uses your accomplishments and your success for their own glory. When someone takes more from you than they give. When someone only pays attention to you when they want something from you. Or when someone uses you for his own or her own personal pleasure. Jesus is teaching us not to become cold and cynical towards God when we encounter other selfish people. Instead, we are not to lose heart in prayer as people of faith. Fourth thing that I notice in this text is that we oftentimes lose heart in prayer when we question God's character. Unfortunately, I got four minutes to work through the final two points. 
We often lose heart in prayer when we question God's character. So you have to track with me on this, and you have to go find the notes probably so that you can get more. Like when we begin to question God's character, we begin to subtly believe that God isn't just, or that he, he doesn't really love us, or that God doesn't really listen to our cries for help. It's too easy to believe that God will not dispense justice for our suffering at the hands of other people. It's too easy to reject God's love rather than truly receive it because we believe that God has abandoned us in our deepest hours of pain and suffering. It's too easy to believe that God doesn't hear our desperate cries for help when we are struggling with our own sin sickness as well as the sin sickness of others that is done against us. But God is a just God because it's part of who he is. God is love because it's part of who he is. God does listen because it's part of who he is. Nothing changes God. Same yesterday, today, and forever. But Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Like, hey, notice what he says. And will not God give justice to his elect? Circle that word or underline it. Who cry to him day and night. If you've heard this story about this jerk of a judge in this passage and your heart is wrestling with that picture, then you really are in a place where you need to hear about the father that we have in heaven who is nothing like this judge. He's nothing like that judge. That's the great thing about our Father in heaven is that he is just, he is loving, and he does hear everything we come to him with. He's always there. He's always listening. He's always loving. In regards to God being a just God, we may question God's ability to act righteously towards us when we felt like he's left us in the midst of painful circumstances, of suffering and abuse. But the reality, as we learned last week, listen, the reality is that judgment and justice, while they may not be dispensed right now, they will be someday when Christ returns. It's what you and I look forward to. But listen, that same justice and judgment that you're ready for God to execute on someone else, he could and should execute upon you for your sin. But if you're here and you've trusted in Christ, that means that you are one of his elect. That moves us into the next piece. In regards to God's love, we may question and even reject the notion of God's never-ending, unearnable, steadfast love. Just because we question his love, though, doesn't mean that his love towards us changes. Jesus says that God will give justice to his elect. And he does this by asking rhetorical questions, almost like a sarcastic question, a sarcastic question. And he does this to draw our attention to the truth that God is love. And he does it when he uses that word elect. That's why I told you to circle it or underline it. The word elect simply means chosen. Look it up. It's the meaning of the word. Chosen. Everyone who has believed, everyone who will believe in the message of the cross of Christ has been chosen by God as objects of his love poured out upon us since before the very foundations of the earth, according to Ephesians, while we were yet to sin, 
And listen, though we don't have time or space to like really unpack this entire doctrine completely, I would turn you to Romans 7 through 9 and especially chapter 8 for further study on this doctrine of election. But basically, the truth that we have to be set free with today is the truth that God has chosen us who have believed and who will believe upon the work of Christ to be adopted out of slavery to the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin, which is death and and wrath and judgment to become sons and daughters of God in Christ Jesus through the work of the Spirit as he awakens our dead hearts and breathes new life into them through the message of the gospel. God is love. And the truth that he is love is made obvious in the doctrine of election. And this doctrine helps us not to lose heart in prayer. It's what we've seen in that song when we've seen, I will not fear. Adopted son, I'm not alone. It's knowing that God has chosen you. You couldn't choose him had he not chose you first. The only thing you would have chosen is more sin and more death. In regards to God not listening to our cries for help, I think we question God's perfect character. We question his perfect character in terms of his ability to listen to and hear our cries for help because we forget that he is perfect. He is just. He is love. We forget and we question these things because we move our attention off of him as the object of our satisfaction and we move our attention onto our problems and our suffering and our difficulty and we stop crying out to him day and night. In other words, what we do is we begin to believe that our satisfaction is found in our problems being resolved rather than God being the resolver of any problem you and I could ever have. We find our satisfaction looking horizontally to get all of our desires and longings met here rather than looking there to find them there. That's the problem. We have to be reminded that God is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. God is not lacking in any way. Let me say it again. God is not lacking in any way. When you come to him, you come to him lacking so that you can be made complete. God does not, does. God does listen to our cries. And knowing that helps us not to lose heart in prayer. What happens in your heart when you begin to question God's ability to act rightly, to love completely, and to listen? Do you find yourself losing heart? Do you struggle to believe in God's goodness and rightness because you believe he has abandoned you? Or worse, that he has caused the harm and abuse and the suffering that you've experienced? I come to him and admit that. His shoulders are big enough for you to do just that. Do you stiff arm or reject his unending love because you believe he has acted hatefully towards you? Do you get discouraged because you've begun to believe that God must not be listening to your cries for help when you don't experience the freedom or the change that you expected to experience? God is teaching us here is not to lose heart by questioning God's justice, his love, or his ability to listen. And the fifth thing that I think that we lose heart in prayer because we question God's timing. We begin to question God's timing. And what we're doing is we're really giving in to the belief that our timing is better than his. 
And the reality is that with God, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. In other words, God is sovereign. He's in control of every moment. His timeline is often very different from ours. But the problem is that when God doesn't act the way that we want him to, or in the timing that we want him to, then we begin to question God. We begin to question his timing. And this is why Jesus reminds us that God will not delay his plan for quick justice. Jesus says that, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice speedily. And I know, I know where we go when we read this, right? Like when Jesus says this, it could be too easy for us to glance over and give this half-hearted like head nod towards him, like this vague kind of agreement to the truth that God's timing is his own. Let me just propose that I think our sense of good timing must be aligned with our growth in faith. In other words, I think we actually grow in our faith as we trust God to act, not in yours and mine's timing, but in God's timing as we trust him. We cannot give God a flunking grade because he doesn't act in accordance with our perceived timeline of justice. We can only persevere in our faith and grow in our faith as we trust him to execute justice in accordance with his own timeline and plan since he is God and we are not. Do you struggle with attempting to remove God from his throne because of your mistrust in his timing? Are you tempted to believe that God has failed you, tempted to believe that God is delaying his plan somehow to punish you? Jesus is teaching us here not to lose heart in prayer because the question, when we question God's timing and what he's encouraging us to do is not lose heart because his timing doesn't make sense to us. My conclusion in regards to why we lose heart in prayer is just simply this. We often lose heart in prayer because we encounter people who don't fear God, who don't respect love or show compassion for other people, and we get discouraged. We suffer injustice, so we wonder where God is. We encounter people with selfish motivations, so we get cynical and cold. We question God's character, so we begin to believe that he isn't just. He doesn't love us. He doesn't listen to our cries for help. We question God's timing because we believe that we could do the job better than he does. But the reality is that there's two questions in the text. The question that we ask is, why do we lose heart in prayer? But the question God asks is, are you going to be a person of faith? Verse 8, Jesus says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, are you a person of faith? Do you trust God in the midst of your discouragement? Are you persevering in your faith amidst suffering and hardship and injustice? Are you repenting of your sinful and cold-hearted cynicism towards God and other people? Are you growing in your relationship with God as your righteous and good judge who loves you infinitely and hears every cry for help that comes from your lips? It's the Spirit of God reassuring your heart and your soul of God's dependability, even when you wonder how much time will it take for you to return, Jesus? The question we got to ask ourselves, the question we asked at the beginning, are you a person of faith who doesn't lose heart in prayer? Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you again for this message and our time here in the Gospel of Luke, learning what it means to be people who do not lose heart in prayer, but continue to persevere in the faith as we seek to follow you. God, I pray that you would take this message and apply it to our hearts now as we head into communion and a closing song of worship. I pray, God, that you would, that you would convict our hearts, but that you would encourage our hearts to stay the course, to not shipwreck our faith, to trust in you though we get discouraged, to come to you though other people may not, to come to you and to persevere in our faith and our, our, our prayers to you, our asking you, even though others may treat us wrongly. I pray that you would continue to build people of faith in our church family. In Jesus' name, amen. As we wrap up, I would encourage you guys to stand with me and worship. There will be someone near the front to serve communion to you. The way that we do this is you can come to the front and you can get the communion elements if you are a believer. You don't have to be a member of our church, but you got to be a believer. If you're not a believer, we ask that you not come and that you spend some time thinking about what it means to follow Christ. That way you don't do this as a mindless activity, which means nothing. If this is that moment where you've come to Christ and you just trusted in his work at the cross and the power of the empty tomb, then we would invite you to come celebrate with us the work of Christ at the cross as his body was broken horrendously and as his blood was poured out on our behalf so that we could become sons and daughters of God. Thanks for letting me preach tonight. Love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.